Welcome and thank you for downloading the Green Majority Podcast. The news this week is that, yes, that's it. We finally took all the uh, applications for our new uh, producer and volunteer roles and whatever exactly that ends up working out. And we've all moved on to phase two. So if you uh, did apply, you should have gotten an email from us uh, requesting some of your time to come talk to us. If you did apply or in some other way sent us an email and you didn't get an email from us, if it's not there currently in your email box, well, then something happened and we missed it. Uh, and you should let us know about that right away. Aside from that, for all the non-applicant people, for all everyone else, that ball is rolling. I appreciate it's moving very slowly, but we are doing our best. Uh, we're looking to uh, hopefully have some new folks on board by the end of this month. If everything goes well, we're very excited. Sorry, <laughs> I spoke too soon. By the end of February, we will have some uh, some new people plugged in and a new person uh, in, in some form of an elevated role, some other people chipping in. So there's very exciting things are now finally happening. We've been talking about it for years is in a theoretical sense. We've been talking about it now months now in a practical sense. And we're now in the state where we can talk about it as a real thing that's really happening. I am so excited. Uh, but aside from that, I don't want to tease too much more aside from just letting everyone know that that ball is still rolling and we're working on it and excite, uh, exciting new things are coming in the pipeline close enough that you can start getting excited. I certainly am. So um, woo for that. Aside from that, we have a really great show. Stefan's off today, but we had not one, not two, but three guests join us. Uh, we talk about that in a minute when the show starts. So I won't take your time now other than to say thank you so much for downloading the Green Majority Podcast. And if you can support us, help pay for those new resources we're going to be using, uh, then you can become a man- member at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Enjoy. Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, I'm Saren Kaster, I'm here in the studio, but usually this is the part in the show when I say, and I'm joined by my co-host Stefan Hostetter, but Stefan Hostetter is MIA today. I think Tim Nash might have kidnapped him. <gasps> is that how I got this gig? It's possible. Don't start controversies right. here. <laughs> so we have actually, it's funny because uh, the week Stefan is not here is actually the, well, he's just not in the building, not here. Um, is the week that we have the most action-packed show ever uh, because I have three guests today. Well, one of them is Co. So Tim is going to be sort of wearing two hats today. Tim is a long-time guest, uh, actually not probably, the longest-time guest ever. Um, has been coming on the show as our sort of uh, finance and, and economics uh, uh, correspondent. I'm your token if you will. economist. The token economist. Let's be real. That's right. Okay. Um, so uh, for two thirds of the program, you'll be my co-host. For one third of the program, you're going to be speaking a little bit uh, about some of the stuff that you're doing. We're we're going to kind of make that part as up as we go along. But so for people to know why you're here, aside from yeah. being a friend of ours, uh, you're the founder of uh, Good Investing, the sustainable uh, economist guy, uh, friend to many, beloved by thousands, uh, <laughs> something. <laughs> Hated by a small few. Hated by a small few, and we don't like those people either. Um, So Tim's going to be my co-host today, and then I'm going to let Tim do a better job of describing what Tim does in the middle of the program when when it's just Tim and I talking. Uh, For now, though, we have our first guest already, which I believe I hear on the line in the background there. Uh, Matthew, are you there? I am here, yes. Good morning, Saren. Good morning, Tim. Good Good morning. morning. 
So uh, thank you so much for joining us. And so Matthew is our sort of uh, a borderline official, and I only say borderline because I haven't put your name on the website yet, uh, EV uh, <laughs> correspondent. So you are the you are the resident Green Majority uh, electronic vehicle uh, monitorer, the author and, and researcher and, and producer of fine amounts of data. Um, you, I, every time you send me articles to read that, the, to preview for the interview, they're always on seven different websites. So uh, my first question for you, you is to, could you please explain to our audience what it is that you actually do? Okay, sure. So I was a chemical engineer, uh, actually. I worked in the clean tech sector and did some work in the renewables. And uh, I discovered that I enjoyed communication even more than engineering. So I have ventured off into the um, speaking to others instead of fighting with numbers space. Um, for... The, the Canadian electric car market, I primarily write for uh, greencarreports.com, so um, my monthly wrap-up of statistics is there, and I'll do occasional in-depth uh, analyses of various things. I co-host the Clean Tech Talk podcast through uh, cleantechnica.com, and so we try to cover a few um, clean tech-oriented topics. I suppose it's not so much a sustainability as a clean tech-oriented show, lots of EV content there. And then occasionally I will um, uh, offer up pieces to different websites uh, just uh, as a, uh, I guess, an effort to diversify my uh, my web publishing portfolio. How's that? That sounds great. Uh, so, Matthew, we... Um... We like to check in with you every once in a while because, as, as you were just saying, you write a number of articles you produce, uh, or I, I, I don't know if you're, you're the head producer, but you're involved in, an, in another podcast as well. Um, but also, you're the, the most knowledgeable person about the actual EV market. So we talked to a lot of folks. So we've done interviews with people from uh, car companies before, but you're really my go-to person as far as like what is happening in the industry. So I'm actually really happy. It's very convenient that Tim Nash is here um, because he sort of helps with, uh, with similar conversations. So he's, he's actually going to help me. Uh, uh, talk to you this morning, but I think just to start, now that we've sort of reminded people or let new listeners know who you are, um, if you want to just sort of do a little bit of an overview, you have some reports coming out soon, and I know you've done a number of episodes, and I know that you also very much like talking about Elon Musk. Uh, so just to begin here, and then I'll, I'll let Tim jump in to sort of keep the ball rolling uh, here, is it which of those are you the most eager to talk about? <laughs> um, I guess we could start with the uh, EV landscape in Canada with uh, plug-in electric vehicles, because that's, that's of most uh, general interest. Um, right now, we probably have on the order of 48,000 uh, plug-in electric vehicles in Canada. Yeah, if you add in uh, used vehicle imports from the States, um, maybe 49,000. And the market share that we had last year was just under 1% of new car sales. And that is kind of, uh, you know, it's lower than we want it to be, but that, that number will increase broadly. Uh, as I've said a few times, I think the biggest thing that will move the needle is when Ford brings out its F-150 plug-in hybrid. Uh, in about 2020, and you might think, well, you know, what percentage of truck drivers will care to be able to plug in their vehicles? But a lot of guys who are contractors uh, might be able to make use of mm -hmm. a nice uh, supply of electricity without actually idling their engine and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely. Yeah. And since the F-150 has something like six percent <clears> or seven percent market share in Canada, sorry, the F series rather, then even if a small, tiny smidgen of those buyers buy the plug-in version, that really moves the needle on. Um, on uh, plug-in electric vehicles, so in a, in a weird way, even though I'm an, I'm an urban Prius driver, farmer vegetarian, you know, with my wife, we kind of came to the <laughs> midpoint on chicken and fish. Um, uh, I'm I'm uh, really stoked about uh, the 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 first plug-in hybrid truck because that will allow my relatives in Saskatchewan to say, "Oh, right. these aren't just for city people anymore." Right. 
And I think that's the important component that you bring to the conversation because, you know, we, we, we do a whole show about, you know, why this stuff is a good idea from at a societal level to deal with climate change and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, I am personally extremely ignorant about, you know, w what's actually happening on the ground. So you were talking about sort of like market share and stuff like that. What you're, you're producing a, a new report uh, for this year that's going to be coming out soon, I believe. If you want to just uh, talk a little bit about that and if there's any sort of preliminary findings you're able to sort of hazard a guess at, that would be very, uh, we'd be interested. Sure, yeah. So our, um, so in Canada, even though automakers report their monthly sales uh, at the beginning of the next month, so. Uh, a lot of automakers have put out December sales. The uh, A lot of them seem to be a little bit shy for some reason about giving out the plug-in electric vehicle sales numbers. They don't break out like the Ford uh, Focus versus the Ford Focus electric. And so we have to wait about a month. Any day now, we should have the data from the vehicle registration organizations who take data from the provincial vehicle registrars and uh, feed that out to the rest of us interested folks. So... Um, uh, early next week, uh, I hope to be, or maybe late next week, I hope to be able to put out a, an update on Green Car Reports on how the plug-in electric vehicle market was in Canada last year. Uh, we do know, though, through 11 months of data, uh, that uh, like Quebec, because it has a zero-emission vehicle mandate, uh, uh, based entirely on California, so like they took it line for line and just converted the miles into kilometers um, <laughs> as units of measure. Uh, so they had about 1.6% plug-in electric vehicle market share last year. BC was next with about 1.3, roughly. Uh, Ontario was about 0.8%. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, if you include regular hybrids, hybrids that don't plug into the wall, uh, BC actually you know, tipped the scale over uh, Quebec about 3.5% to 3. That may relate to the fact that Toyota has a bigger uh, market share in BC than in Quebec because it's kind of on the uh, Pacific coast and that's kind of a natural place for them to have start, started their uh, their North American expansion, you know, California up through BC. Uh, so so still small, but uh, growing rapidly, there will be a, a wonderful um, explosion, like a Cambrian explosion, like we had the, the late <laughs> explosion uh, 400 odd million years ago. There's this Cambrian explosion going on in terms of plug-in electric vehicle selection and offering, and uh, that's fantastic because uh, you can't sell a lot of uh, a particular type of vehicle to people unless you have one in every type, you know, if, unless you have Subarus, unless you have uh, Mazdas eventually, unless you have, you know, Ford and GM trucks and so forth. Matthew and uh, Tim here wants to, I'm going to let Tim uh, ask you a few questions, but I just have one point of clarification about what you just said before I hand it over to him. So when we're talking about 1% uh, market share or 1.6% market share and 1.3% market share, is that 1.6 and 1.3, et cetera, of new cars that year or is that of total cars on the road oh goodness that is that is new cars mm -hmm. that year so um okay. we are we are uh, very much at the rounding error level uh, in terms of overall cars because cars last up to 20 years on the road right okay so yeah. one of the one of the reasons indeed for policy support for electric vehicles um is that uh unlike phones you don't turn over the inventory in a few years you know if we mm -hmm. if we had some magical uh, magical phone which didn't didn't uh, use cobalt in the batteries um, you could within maybe three four years you could the whole um, the whole inventory changes over and we're great but with cars and other very long-lived items um, since they last so long uh, if you want to reduce emissions by a certain amount by 2030 by 2050 you have to start tackling the problem now and um, so yes that's a uh, 1.3 1.6 percent of new cars new vehicle sales uh, in this past year. 
Awesome. And I really love the stats that you provide, uh, breaking it down by model, breaking it down by car company. It's really, really useful to me. Uh, I hear mm-hmm. so much buzz about electric cars and EVs, and there's there's a lot of talk about it, but uh, forgive the pun, but you know, it's nice to see where the rubber hits the road in terms of actual sales. And being able mm-hmm. to follow that month to month, year to year over year is, is really quite exciting. Um, I'd love to ask you about, you know, you, you mentioned policy and policy incentives, and we heard about the market shares in Ontario versus Quebec. And I just want to kind of compare and contrast and get your thoughts on the effectiveness of the policies. Um, you know, you, uh, knowing about uh, Quebec, my understanding is that for every uh, plug-in electric or uh, uh, electric vehicle that's sold, uh, car companies are, I think it's actually the dealerships get sort of essentially tokens and they need to be able to have enough of those credits, enough of those tokens, enough of those uh, uh, sales in order to meet the government mandated minimums versus mm-hmm. here in Ontario. My understanding is that we've gone for a bit more of a, a market mechanism, a subsidy rather than a regulation in that it's straight up. If you buy an electric car, you get a nice fat rebate from the government. Um, I've heard That's a lot right. of, of, of conflicting thoughts about the Ontario approach, and I would just love mm-hmm. to hear your thoughts about the differences between those two policies. What are you seeing in terms of the impact on market demand? And, you know, if you were in charge, if, if, if you could sort of set the policy nationally, Canada-wide, uh, what would you choose? Right. Okay. So um, very quickly then, each in turn. So Quebec uh, has a, a zero-emission vehicle mandate, and that applies to the car manufacturers. Manufacturer, not, not, right. not at the dealership level. Okay. And so right now, uh, for this year, um, starting on January 11th, uh, car uh, manufacturers have to have zero-emission vehicle credits equivalent to 3.5% of their new car sales. Now, that doesn't mean uh, this, this only applies to the larger automakers. Like if you're, uh, if you're Mazda, I think uh, you probably fall, or Subaru, you fall under the level where okay. uh, you need to comply thus far. Right. And now, 3.5% is actually strong. It actually sounds bigger than it is because a car can get up to four credits. Right. Um, if it's a if it's a Chevy Bolt uh, EV, Bolt as in Brampton, Ontario, as opposed to Volt as Vancouver. So the the all electric um, uh, Chevy Bolt EV uh, would fall for four credits, which means that uh, GM would not need to sell nearly as many. They could sell less right. than a percent. Right. Now um, another factor is that in order to avoid massive lobbying from the automakers, uh, Quebec allowed um, car makers to uh, count sales from prior years towards their first year like mm. accumulation. And so that's had the effect that uh, we've had a few cases where plug-in electric cars were first made available in Quebec, because obviously that's where the incentives are, that's where the yeah. stick is as well, and so automakers go there first. The Toyota Prius Prime, the plug-in Prius, uh, will now be available in Canada later this month, but it was available in Quebec for the past six months. So Quebec has a, has a very well-thought-out system. It is based on the California model. And it will ratchet up, so uh, so that's a very uh, right. It, it, a Zev standard is kind of the gold standard because it, it gets you where you want to go. The manufacturers can cross subsidize as they require, selling you know more high profit margin SUVs if they need to to right. make sure that at least some proportion of cars are electric. Now Ontario has gone with a uh, an incentives only approach, and although uh, the data doesn't suggest that's as effective. Uh, it could be tempered by the reality that uh, Ontario has, I think, four auto assembly plants. Mm. Quebec has none. And so mm. there's a political reality dimension where it would be much more difficult 
for the Ontario provincial government to bring in a dev mandate and relatively less difficult for Quebec to do so, right? Quebec is right. similarly easy to bring in a carbon tax like BC because it's all hydroelectric. Mm-hmm. Ontario would have had a harder time back when it was more dependent on coal. Absolutely. You guys have, uh, have uh, moved away from that. Uh, so that's the Ontario versus uh, Quebec question. In terms of um, in terms of policies that would affect yeah. the most change, I think uh, a national uh, zero emission vehicle mandate would be the ideal because, again, that creates targets that have to be set. Right. You know, there's always negotiation that goes on, and you can you can usually bring industry on side as Quebec has done, um, as California has done. Uh, but there's also the question of the other 99.9% of vehicles on the road. And so there is, uh, there is high hope uh, in policy circles that the Canadian government, as part of its ZEV strategy, will implement a low-carbon fuel standard. And what that means is that uh, people who sell gasoline have to reduce the carbon intensity of that gasoline, uh, perhaps by you know, blending in you know, ethanol or, or gener- using say, a renewable natural gas from like landfills instead of fossil natural gas to, uh, to upgrade the oil that they dig out. And the way around that is, since, since that's quite difficult to do, they basically pay a little fine or a little uh, a token amount uh, into a fund uh, when they exceed their carbon intensity limits. And in BC, what this has allowed the government to do is to fund some of the uh, purchase incentives, which is great because it takes that money and... Uh, put it towards the drivers, but also fund more charging stations and, in yeah. some cases, hydrogen stations for fuel cell vehicles uh, whenever they do arrive. I guess they will arrive in Quebec this year, uh, a very small number. And so what this this two-pronged approach with a ZEV strategy, I guess incentives are always thanks as well. Uh, <laughs> don't want to discount those. Um, and a, a low-carbon fuel standard to start attacking or start leveraging all that massive super 99.9 point change percent majority of vehicles which still use fossil fuels and then try and squeeze them a little bit to get funding to rapidly expand our zero emission transport options. So um, an all of the above strategy is, uh, right. is, I guess, the ideal. Perfect. And I guess, you know, what, I, what I'm really excited about is understanding that the uh, that companies are going to be have to have to increase that consumer demand. So I expect to see because they they need to sell more. We would see more advertising. We would see more campaigns around that. You know, one thing I'd love to ask you about is understanding some of the auxiliary benefits of having more electric cars on the road. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you know I heard you say that in Quebec one of the reasons the government is pushing this is that it'll actually allow for more stabilization of their electricity system. I guess that the the price that they would receive when people charge their cars is higher than the price that Quebec gets when they export the electricity. I imagine the same thing is true here in Ontario whenever we have that surplus demand. So there are some auxiliary benefits to having more electric cars being charged. And am I missing anything there? Do I have that right around that, that this is sort of going to be better for our provincial electricity system? And that also, are there any sort of other auxiliary benefits that, that we get from having more EVs on the road? Yeah, so it's very true that um, electric cars are a massive opportunity for electric utilities. They're, uh, I, I, about 40 years ago, when air conditioning became a, a big feature, that increased electric demand, electricity demand, because it's it's a great amenity. And so in a similar way, electric vehicles are this next air conditioning, even bigger than that, really, 
in that they can provide more sales. And um, with Canada's electric, electricity grid being quite clean, that's a great thing. Uh, we can go from a, a fossil-based uh, energy source to a largely renewables-based resource, a low-carbon intensity resource. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing that doesn't get as much attention but could have a more visible and immediate impact is that uh, there are now uh, efforts to um, incentivize and start up the electric truck and electric bus right. um, sectors in Canada. Ontario uh, recently, uh, Loblaws announced that it would buy, it would uh, try out a few, or it, would, it had reservations rather for mm-hmm. a few Tesla trucks, and it's uh, as the uh, Chinese manufacturing giant BYD, Builds the Dream, uh, is planning to build an electric truck factory in uh, in Ontario. Amazing. And the real benefit there is that since these will be replacing diesel vehicles, uh, you can greatly reduce the you can you can reduce the number of like PM 2.5 diesel emissions and the the smog forming chemicals that you get even from a highly regulated diesel engine, which would have a a bigger health benefit than a regular gasoline engine, which which don't Absolutely. create uh, as much soot. And so that is perhaps an under-recognized uh, big opportunity that we have here, uh, especially when it comes to respiratory illnesses for people in less wealthy communities who tend to live close to the highways and yeah. other uh, other areas with a lot of um, a lot of diesel traffic. Awesome. So that is that is a um, I mean the, the sales volumes will never be as big. But that is a really encouraging uh, approach. Uh, now all the major truck uh, makers are uh, um, truck makers yeah, are jumping on board, or at least they they know that they have to have something because their customers are indicating, you know, we want this. It will be cheaper for us. Uh, it's cleaner for us. And why wouldn't we take advantage yeah, why of? Why not? Stuff? It's a win-win-win for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing I need to ask you about. Uh, I found it fascinating your perspective on Elon Musk. I'm an Elon uh, Musk fanboy. I love what he's doing. I think it's really nice. I think he brings a lot of energy to the space. And you know, knowing that, especially in the car industry, there is a sexiness factor that needs to happen, and Tesla certainly have that in large part, yeah. sort of due to his personality. But I know you're you've got a different take on him. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit your thoughts about Elon? Sure. I guess I I start off the same way as a, as a fanboy. Wow, this guy's. Better. He's cooler than Steve Jobs. He's not just reinventing <laughs> one industry. He's reinventing multiple industries. And um, what uh, I found over the years, this uh, this uh, disappointing trend where he and by proxy, uh, by extension, Tesla, really don't seem to be able to disagree politely with people. Right. And uh, uh, what I did in a recent article on Eve Smith's uh, wonderful Naked Capitalism uh, blog is I enumerated a number of cases where he, he isn't just punching up um, sarcastically or uh, vigorously against big oil, which is what he used to do, right. or you know, big and um, sclerotic uh, auto empires, which, again, that's fine. No one minds people punch up. But now uh, when it has come to uh, disputes with employees about forming union or a woman, yeah. a, a female engineer who, who alleged um, sexual um, discrimination, yeah. the, the company and he have applied the same tact which is a which is a, a punching down phenomenon, and it's great when you're the underdog and uh, you can kind of stick it to the man. <laughs> but if you're a multi-billionaire and you're uh, you're bashing, you know, uh, employees who are earning a blue-collar wage right. or uh, otherwise um, otherwise who are much lower in the social stratum, than you, then that 
that is a very big warning sign because at some point you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna attack enough people who have enough friends that suddenly the vast majority isn't necessarily with you and he had a little uh, exchange with a uh, urban planner Mm. and transit advocate where he called uh, Jared Walker uh, he called him an idiot and some other (laughs) even worse thing uh, he blocked the chief planner of Toronto on Twitter. Which, wow! And and now he wants Says something to, now. There. I think that there is something there. And, yeah, and and again, I'll corroborate, that might be okay. Yeah. Sure. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll just corroborate what you're saying by I've always been really disappointed in Tesla's uh, sustainability score. I follow a lot, a lot of these publicly traded companies. There's a firm called Sustainalytics that does these environmental, mm-hmm. social, yes, and yeah. governance analysis. And Tesla has right. always been had a very, very disappointing score. And so reading your blog, it was very poignant. You really laid out uh, a lot of very clear reasons. And I would say structural risks, that when we look at risks to the company's reputation, so much of their share price, so much of their sales are kind of based on this rock star, sort of Tony Stark persona, right? That it's really, I think that there's a danger there. Uh, Certainly we've seen it with Uber, where you know a lot of folks just really don't like them as a corporation. So if we were to see the tide shift on Tesla, then that would certainly have a huge impact uh, across their entire brand. Right. So so in that article, I noted that uh, you know I'm very hopeful that someone who has his ear could see that, could see these warning signs, and and tell him, hey, you know, just you know ratchet <laughs> it back when you're when you're not punching up, yeah. uh, just to make sure um, you know you don't you don't cause unintentional enemies. Uh, because his, you know, his company um, may be able to um, drill holes or drill tunnels faster than others, which is great. But if you've alienated urban planners and yeah. uh, other transit advocates, they're not going to be at your. They're not going to be having your back when you want to, you know, dig tunnels uh, in Absolutely. in various cities. We need everyone so, on board um, with this transition. Yeah, and exactly. I, I don't know if it's. And, yeah, I, I was just going to say I don't know if it's just Toronto, but in my experience, an awful lot of urban planners are actually women. So uh, watch it. <laughs> oh well, there you go. Yeah, well, definitely. It might just so, be Toronto. So might again, just be an anomaly, uh, but yeah. Right. So, so you are absolutely correct there, Tim. Uh, earlier, uh, in noting that Tesla has brought the sexiness factor, the wow factor. Everyone has to have electric vehicles and great electric vehicles if they're luxury uh, car makers, which is, you know, in uh, it's uh, priceless. What um, Elon has done the challenge is just to make sure that um, he stays humble uh, as as often as possible to make sure that you keep that massive coalition together because as soon as you start breaking that up and uh, you get infighting that just I mean that's what the Koch brothers want right they want to divide and conquer and yeah. we want to we want to maintain as united uh, a, a front as possible. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. Uh, Matthew Klippenstein, again, uh, uh, podcaster and EV expert and uh, author, contributor to Clean Technica. Uh, we do have to go, uh, but thank you so much for your time, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thank you very much, sir, and uh, thank you very much as well, Tim. My yeah. pleasure. And we'll, uh, anyone who's interested, we'll make sure that the uh, the piece you wrote uh, for Elon Musk and, the, and some of the other links to some of your Clean Technica uh, information in the podcast, we'll make sure that's on today's show post, so greenmajority.ca today. For everybody, you can get links to that as well. Uh, we're going to move on now to Megan, however, who is our tech this week and who's going to tell us what our music break is. And then we're going to come back and talk some more with Tim.
Uh, and we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And I neglected to say at the beginning, because I'm all flustered because Stefan's not here, uh, that you could be listening on CIUT, but you might also be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. Uh, you could also be listening on the podcast, which is, you know, I don't want to be biased here, but is probably, it is the best way to listen. I, that's how I listen it's to the, the show. It's the best way to listen to the show. Uh, because you get about a minute and a half extra of me talking. Uh, that's why. Uh, sometimes more, but at a minimum, at a minimum, an extra 90 seconds of my voice. I'll take all the Sarah and I can that's get. That's right, you know? Okay, so, and also, I neglected one further duty. I'm, I apologize as well. Our, our, I, I don't think I did a good job, if, if possibly at all, of telling you who the last guest was. So uh, our last guest who's coming up uh, in, a, uh, in just the final section there uh, is Beatrice Hunter, who is a grandmother from Muskrat Falls. Um, and she had a, a very personal experience with a, we're talking about big corporations and, and corporate footprints. Well, in this case, quite a literal footprint. There's a mega project dam, uh, and she got caught up legally. I'm going to let her tell the story, but that's a bit of a, a thing. She did end up spending some, a grandmother who spent some time in, an, in prison, uh, and we're going to let wow. her tell that story, but that is going to be coming up last. Don't mess with well. the grandmothers. So we want to make sure that we leave enough time for Beatrice. So Absolutely. on that note, we're going to get right to Tim so that we sure. can get right to Beatrice. So uh, with that all being otherwise said, Tim, uh, as we said, it was great that you were here the same week Matthew is here because there's such a great amount of overlap yeah. uh, between your topics. So, and but he I'll and I are both big out. nerds, uh, so we get along really well. <laughs> Well, we both really nerd out on the screen stuff, so I feel like there's a nice little symbiosis there. Uh, I do a lot of research when it comes, it's great seeing his data, that sort of on the ground data of how many electric cars have been sold by make, by model, you know, by month, by year. And that uh, it really informs some of the research that I do because what I'm looking at is the R&D aspect. So research and development that large publicly traded car companies are making in electric vehicles. And it's just so exciting to see really, I would, I would say uh, we've, we've hit a bit of a tipping point in terms of the car companies getting it. Mm. Understanding that this transition is inevitable. Like I don't know if you if you ever saw the How to Kill the Electric Car or Who Killed the Electric Car. Yeah, we interviewed right? the director actually. Yeah, yeah, so way back when that was, you know, I'm trying to remember how long ago it was that GM sort of killed that first electric car. But it's there's always been this really tricky dynamic where car companies, uh, uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. They want to sell more cars, and seemingly if they could sell more electric vehicles, they'd probably be happy. But for whatever reason, they always kind of seem to be in cahoots with the oil companies. I don't know exactly what was going on there, but really uh, seemed uh, determined to keep selling uh, um, you know, really large, inefficient uh, uh, combustion engine vehicles. So to see Ford now jumping fully on board and releasing like the fact that we're going to have an electric F-150 is amazing. Like that is so awesome. Uh, I'm not a truck driver myself, but I have driven them in the past. And when they're useful, man, they are useful. If you've got a job where you need a big vehicle like that, to be able to have an electric option is going to be um, awesome. Um, and then at the same time, GM is now fully on board. I think the number I saw is that they're investing $11 billion into electric vehicle R&D. Um, and really, it's understanding that the American companies are sort of playing catch up to a lot of the European and, and uh, uh, Japanese companies. 
Um, you know, obviously Toyota's been at this for a while. Um, we've got Volkswagen, which, you know, is sort of trying still, I think, to come back from that scandal. Have we forgiven Volkswagen yet? No. I'm not, not sure. No. Okay. Okay. I'll ask you again in a year. <laughs> People just got thrown in jail for that, I think, didn't they? So it's right. They've got some work to do re- rehabilitating their image. So they're going all in with electric cars. Uh, you know, BMW, I've seen a couple electric BMWs. They are fine, fine vehicles. So it's going to be really interesting to see. But, um, you know, what I'm really tracking is that R&D spend. Uh, I've got my dream, my green transition scoreboard research report that I do every year. Uh, we're going to be doing it again in April of this year. So I'm trying to sort of get my mind primed for that. And I think we're going to see a huge bump in green R&D, specifically because uh, these large auto companies are making public announcements, spending billions on electric vehicle R&D. So I'm going to ask you an incredibly ignorant question sure. from my point of view, because this is like the area of least knowledge for me. There are no dumb questions. We're wading into a dark, dark, deep water here. Um, what does somebody, so a company uh, in, takes a large amount of money, so just yeah. relative to their size, a large sure. amount of money. It doesn't matter yeah. which company or what the dollar is, but a relatively yeah. large investment. In research and development, Is it is there an easy answer as to what that might do generally speaking, for their stock price? Like, does that generally make people seem it's optimistic? Or pe- does that look like, oh, the, the fact that they need to research right. something means they don't have it and that's concerning? <laughs> right. Like, what, what is the, is there a normal effect yeah. of that? So it's tough. Uh, and when it comes to investment, uh, it's got what, what we call a pretty sort of long-term lag effect. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we always look at multiplier effects from consumption, from investment, where these things, the type of thing, the government spends money to, like, build infrastructure. That's got a really quick multiplier effect. They've got to get, as soon as they get the troubles in the ground, they're paying employees, uh, the construction workers, the construction workers are buying lunch and buying hopefully electric F- uh, F-150s and right things like that. Uh, so that, that money gets turned over right away. We can see a boost to GDP fairly quickly from government spending. When it comes to investment, this is a longer term play. And what I would argue is that the, the metrics certainly that I look at when I'm looking at companies is the percentage of their expenses spent on R&D. Right, because that way, if it's if they're spending a hundred billion dollars a year, and you know five billion of that is on research and development, that tells me something. Versus one of their competitors that's still spending that same hundred billion, but is only spending one billion on R and D. Right? I like companies that are ahead of the curve. Not everyone looks at it that way. I would say it's a very it's it's a long path to go from an investment in R and D to greater profitability and a higher share price. Um, but what I would say is specifically in innovative spaces, uh, absolutely, I think it's important that, that we look at how much companies or how much money companies are spending on green R&D. Right. Because like trying to work it into an analogy that I could understand, I was like, you know, if somebody shows up for a first date with in like a, you know, in, in a rented limo and a, sure. and a tuxedo or something like that, like I'm, I'm getting the like, oh, you're desperate, not the like, oh, how exciting. Yeah. Right. So like, I, I'm just curious if there, there's not a general trend, it's complicated. That's answer, fair, but absolutely. And different industries, industry by industry, right? You know, if we look at something like the food sector, like there's <laughs> not going to be as much R&D spent by restaurants, mm-hmm. right? Whereas with car companies, that's probably the largest, I would say, out of the sectors that I've seen car companies spend the largest amount on Mm, R&D, right? So it's really interesting to look at these things. And, you know, what I would argue is that we are in a period of economic transition twofold. One is certainly in terms of sustainability and specifically around carbon and carbon pricing. And like this is now like a thing that it's companies acknowledge that they need to do. Uh, The second transition is still digitally. 
right? When we look at a lot of the how the internet changed everything, and now we've got blockchain and like cloud-based uh, everything sort of popping up, that a lot of these companies are like, okay, we need to figure this out and we need to be ahead of this curve. And large companies like a large ship or a large truck, like it takes a lot longer to change direction. So for me, it's I certainly don't see it as a weakness when companies are spending more on R&D. That's something that I actually really appreciate because it tells me they're taking a long-term perspective on this, right? The reality is if, if I'm a CEO and I want my share price to go up ASAP, I'm not going to spend money on R&D. I'm going to spend money on marketing. Yeah, exactly. Right? I'm going to that, put that part I know billions, about. right? And that, that has the quickest turnaround. <laughs> so I like it when companies are spending more on R&D. Why design a new widget when you can just tell people they need widgets more? Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And for me, like, at, 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 at you know, in the in this end of the pool that I'm comfortable is sort of talking about at a very, very meta level. And right. so for me, like, I, see, I view um, things like renewable energy, so personal investments in yeah. solar panels and stuff like that, and cars yeah. to be among the best indicators of sort of like are um, people like as far as real commitment, right? right? Because you could have the sort of like, and we experienced this a few years ago, and I feel like it corrected a few times since then. Sure. But like where like it's really hot to buy, uh, you know, biodegradable shampoo. Sure. But that's really easy because that can be made to seem sexy. It's three dollars. Like okay. you know, a, a giant surge in in biodegradable shampoo yeah. sales doesn't indicate, I think, a social trend. Okay. I see that so, as yeah. indicating a market. Trend right. which could reverse at any moment. Whereas yeah. when people are making investments of ten, fifteen, thirty, fifty thousand dollars of their money, yeah. that to me is a much stronger indicator of Absolutely. actual of actual like change. Yeah, you know and what I mean? and for me, it's the longer term things, right? Absolutely, consumption, you know, changing consumption uh, has a big impact. But it was really interesting. There's a, a an organization called CoPower. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they sell uh, Canada's first with national David, green bond. Fantastic. Yep. So they sell a green bond nationally anywhere across Canada. You can buy this green bond, and uh, they did a study looking at the carbon footprint of the average Canadian's investment portfolio, and it is massive. Mm. Like if you have a hundred k invested in in a, an equity portfolio, that's like I think I forget the exact math. But it's like an order of magnitude, I think about 10 times more than like buying an electric car mm. or like not flying, you know, avoiding a flight per year or even, you know, so it's the type of thing where these little consumption decisions absolutely keep doing it. They do add up over time and they do make a tangible impact. But from my mind, if you really want to look at systemic change, looking at your investment portfolio is absolutely huge. So on that note, I'm going to take the opportunity because one thing I really want to tell your audience about is an event I'm running in Toronto on February 21st. It's called the Good Investment Fair. Uh, we did it last year. It was great. We had, it was the worst weather, like the worst weather on the day <laughs> was, of the fair. Yeah. <laughs> you wake up in the morning and it's like, oh no, it's like this cold rain, like horrible mucky out there. And we still had 350 people come wow. through. And so this year I'm hoping it's going to be even bigger. Um, it's at the Center for Social Innovation, the Annex location. Um, all the details are online, and if you'd be so kind to post yeah, them on your it'll be on the, on the show post, we'd yeah. appreciate it. But the Good Investment Fair, uh, I think we're going to have about nine different organizations that have current offerings of community bonds, green bonds, microfinance. There's now a, um, a 
equity-based crowdfunding. So this is kind of like a Kickstarter, except instead of getting a product, you get shares in the company, mm. which is now a legal thing here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So we've got a few organizations that, that are doing that. In, and everything is aligned with sustainability, either on an environmental or social impact side. And so really, these, this is a way for people to come in and meet these different organizations that are going to be uh, have little booths there. Uh, I play a bit of a game where when people come in, they're given fake money. So I'm going to give you, Sam, I'm going to give you $3 million, $3 million bills, and you get to go around talking to these different organizations and figure out who you want to invest your money with. And, um, and it's great because there are a lot of these opportunities available. We know that changing your investments and at least, you know, not you wouldn't want to put all of your money in this direction, but even carving out part of your investment portfolio for these community bonds, green bonds, microfinance, um, can have a huge impact in the world. Uh, but it also makes sense from a financial perspective to diversify your portfolio. So I'm really excited about that event. Um, I think that there are huge opportunities for grassroots, for people to get involved. Very much my change theory in my business is about hearts and minds. Um, what I find is that all the data tells me that you don't need to sacrifice financial returns in order to do good in the world, even though a lot of people assume you do, right? You don't. And so to get through that psychological barrier, Mm. Uh, my mission now, the audacious goal that I've set, is I want to help one million Canadians invest intentionally. And the change theory there is that if I can get a million Canadians investing their own money, knowing what they're buying, making a deliberate decision, right, I think very quickly it's going to become the default setting. That it's going to be, of course, I'm going to invest my own money. I'm not going to pay some greedy banker, you know, a big chunk of my retirement to do it for me. No, I'm going to learn how to do it myself. Right. And if I'm going to learn how to do it myself, of course, I'm going to consider my values mm -hmm. and go out of my way to support organizations that will give me a good financial return, but also will let me feel good about. And if I can get a million Canadians doing it, making more money, feeling good about it, having the knowledge and the education to talk to their friends and families about this, then, you know, I think we're going to hit that sort of Malcolm Gladwell tipping point mm -hmm. where very quickly it'll become 15, 16 million Canadians that are investing in this way. Well, and I mean, even just doing my quick pocket napkin math, you get a million Canadians at even just a thousand bucks each. So that's a billion dollars. Yeah. I did exactly. that math, right? Uh, yeah, that's okay. correct. Billion dollars. <laughs> a thousand each. Yeah, but you got it. Like this is, you know, there's a huge, huge, huge amount of money that is right now sitting in really high fee mutual funds, right? Just because it's the status quo bias. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's uh, Matthew talked earlier about the, the, the time, you know, that, that sort of that delay or how long the life of a, a vehicle and the, the time between when you choose a vehicle and you choose a new vehicle. Well, a lot of people, when they look at their investments, they only do it once in their life. Right. So it's really, really interesting. It's a very slow process. So a lot of people are stuck in these like high fee mutual funds that are invested in things that are not aligned with their values at all. Right. And if we were to be able to engage that money and even put, you know, 5% of it, 10% of it towards green bonds, towards community bonds, we're talking about a massive systemic change where now all of a sudden there is no capital barrier, there is money available, you want to do an energy efficiency project, you know, you want to build green sustainable infrastructure, right? You want to have uh, uh, supports for people, marginalized people to be able to start their own businesses through microloans. Like now uh, the barrier to all of those things right now is the upfront capital required, right? If we can get people to start shifting their money 
we're going to remove that massive financial barrier. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's uh, I think it's all very excited. And as you know, we've been talking about it recently on this show, you know, it's too early to celebrate, but I'm, right. I've at least uh, I've started trying to find out where my sparkler candles are. <laughs> there's a there's a glimmer on the horizon. Absolutely. And, and I think we have to kind of go through the darkest hours to get to that brighter dawn. Yeah. Right. That right now when I feel there's just there's so much. Uh, you know, anger and resentment towards a lot of these things when, when I start lurking around comment boards where I shouldn't be around carbon taxes and things like that. There are a lot of people against this. Um, but the reality is that it is a general shift is uh, happening. And from in my mind, it's not a question of if this shift happens, but simply how quickly is it happening and will we get there in time? Yeah. All right. So we're going to go to our music break and then we're going to come back in just a couple of minutes to talk to our final guest. Uh, Tim may or may not stick around, but uh, either way, uh, thank you so much for your time, Tim. We'll make sure all that information gets on the website and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes to talk to Beatrice Hunter, who's going to give us a very different side of, of this story about uh, corporations. Uh, Tim and Matthew and I have been talking a little bit about um, some glimmers of hope and uh, companies doing good things and how to, whether or not they're doing good things, uh, invest your money in people who you do support. Uh, Beatrice is going to tell us a little bit about her experience of being on the wrong side of a company who's not doing good things. Um, and she'll tell us about that story in a couple of minutes when we come back. But in the moment, in the meantime, to get us there, Stephen is going to join us with a music break. Right, so we are back again. I'm your host, Sarah Kester. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. Uh, or you could be listening to the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. You can get all of the show notes there, links to uh, all the information. We're going to have links posted today uh, about Tim and the Green a Good Investment Fair, and uh, the articles from uh, Matthew Klippenstein from the beginning of the program about uh, EV vehicles. And we're also going to have some links to the story that we're about to talk talk about now. Uh, as a brief introduction before we hear from uh, Beatrice, a, a listener reached out to us, as they often do, and, and recommended I, I look into something and connected me to uh, Beatrice. And, and uh, part of the story here was that this was something that was entirely 100% off my radar. So I got in contact with Beatrice, and she's been kind enough to take some of her time uh, to come and tell us uh, her story. So um, I want to let her tell most of the story, but uh, it's about the uh, mega project uh, dam in Muskrat Falls uh, from Labrador. Beatrice is on the phone now from Labrador. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. How are you? I'm wonderful today. How are you? Good. Uh, so, Beatrice, as I was, uh, as we were just saying there a moment ago, I would really like as much as possible for you to just um, tell us a little bit of a story. But the the first place that that we talked about that that I wanted to make clear to the listeners, of course, is that you are a grandmother, not an activist, uh, and yet you've had quite a quite an amazing ordeal, and the ordeal has not stopped. We spent a lot of the show today talking about companies doing good things, and and I think it's very appropriate to have you on at the end of the program today to talk about companies who are doing very, very bad things. So with that introduction, I was wondering if you'd just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, sure. Um, my name is Beatrice Hunter. I'm a, a Labrador Inno grandmother, um, and I never intended to be an activist, but I've been labeled as an activist. And how I started to get into this controversy uh, with this project was when um, my son and I um, 
had actually occupied Muskrat Falls in 2016 with uh, with about 50 of us all together. Um, we had occupied uh, Muskrat Falls for four and a half days because we weren't getting answers on on the environmental concerns with methylmercury poisoning and there was no independent study on the North Spur, which is a natural part of the dam. So once we, once I had gone through the gate, um, I guess that's when it all started. Um, and ever since then, I've also been put in prison for 11 and a half days because I had, uh, I would not agree to the condition of not going through the Muskrat Falls Gate, gate or going to the Muskrat Falls Gate, I should say, um, because I wanted to go and support my fellow Labradorians in this fight with the provincial government and the multi-billion dollar corporation, Nelcor. So ever since um, we had occupied, we have been, we are still fighting in court against Nelcor, trying to hold them accountable for all the concerns we have. And that's what brought me here today. That's so... We're still fighting. Um, hopefully, I'm hoping this year that uh, our court proceedings will be over um, because it's very stressful, not only worrying about not only worrying about the North Spur, but also worrying about going to co- court. Mm-hmm. So it's it's taking its toll. It's very exhausting um, for myself and my son. But it's I I can't imagine what the um, Mud Lake flood victims are going through right now because uh, there's going to be another spring thaw this year, and they're wondering are they going to flood again. Um, because Nelcor is not very transparent with their information, so mm-hmm. it's it's a stressful situation. And 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 traumatic as well. Your experience. I, I won't ask you to to get into that, but of course, but just to sort of highlight for the the, the listeners, the the time in jail was not um, pleasant. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience. Um, can you tell me uh, what your sense of obviously you're, you're talking about you're 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 fighting with the the government and with this private company and and I think it's fair to say that at times it might feel like they're the same entity. Um, what is your sense of public support generally there, as far as uh, general generally in Labrador? How how are your average Labradorians uh, feeling about this topic, both the project itself and your your opposition to it? It's. Um... I, I think there's a lot of support, but people. I, I think when I was sent to prison, sent to prison, I was set up as an example that anybody who speaks out or or tries to protest against this project, they they they'll rip 
be reprimanded for it. So there, there's a lot of people that that are, are I, I think they want to speak out. I think they want to do something, but I think after I've been sent to prison, they're a little bit afraid to do anything about it. Mm. So the warning might have worked, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me at all about... Um, I mean, one of the things you were kind enough to send me an article that you wrote about your ex- experience and, and uh, with your permission, uh, if there's a public copy, I would love to put that on today's show post so our listeners can read it as well. Yeah, um, sure. But one of the things that you talked about in that was, um, you know, somewhat about your experience, but also uh, I think the very important part that, that I would like to ask you to tell our listeners about was you spent a fair bit of that uh, piece that you wrote um, talking about it was sort of what what the whole thing was like from your perspective. And wh- what I mean by that was that, you know, you were sort of, we talked about how, you know, many people, or at least some people, or at least the government and the company sort of acted and were just labeling you essentially not just an activist, but just essentially a troublemaker as if you didn't really have any good reason uh, for opposing this project. And, and mm. you spent a bit of time talking about your family and about the future. And I was wondering if you could just explain that a little bit to the listeners, your perspective on this, why this is important. Um. It's in my indigenous nature, I guess, um, to think about the future. Um, my my parents have always taught me to respect Mother Earth, um, and we've always been told to think about the future. Um, I, I I I I considered a troublemaker, I guess, because. Um, I, I I don't understand that part where I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to hold the provincial government and this Crown Corporation accountable, where the Labrador land protectors and I are just trying to ensure that our people are safe. Mm-hmm. That That's all we're trying to do. It's, 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 I, I, I have never ever considered myself common criminal and but that's what they label me as mm-hmm. um and i can't help but think it's an oppressive system when all you're trying to do is ensure that the provincial government and this crown corporation do do this project right mm-hmm. so i don't understand why I'm labeled as a troublemaker um, when all I feel is I'm doing what I feel is necessary in order to keep our people safe. You're guilty of the crime of caring about your family. Not only family, but of the land, Mm -hmm. of the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very important thing to highlight too. What we're talking about is what you know with the that there's a number of things wrong with this this project, and and I'm going to try and put some resources on the show post for the listeners to have a look at. Uh, but methylmercury is no joke. Methylmercury poisoning is very 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 serious. Yeah, exactly. And and I just don't understand when Canada is such such an advanced nation. To me, where aren't we? more smarter, more intellectual than that to have such a project going on. I, I just, it, 
I, I'm dumbfounded because I grew up believing in my nation. I grew up believing in Canada, and I thought we were more tolerant of each other's culture or each other's race or whatever that may be because I just, I just I'm just I would ne I never thought in a million years I would go to prison ever hmm. because I was always a law abiding citizen. I always believed our laws were good but now that I've been to prison I, I question everything now. Is there, um, you know, we have, uh, as I was mentioning to you when we spoke briefly uh, before the interview yesterday, I mentioned that we have, uh, you know, we're, we have radio syndicates throughout the country. There, there are some in the East Coast and all across Canada. We have podcast listeners all around the world. Uh, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm going to post some links about the, the, the project itself. Uh, is there a way that if people are interested that they can reach out and support you if they're maybe not in Labrador and they're maybe not even in Canada? Is there, is there any way that people could support you if they're interested? Yes, there's a, there's a, a legal fund we have on the uh, Labrador Land Protector page that people can help out with. I also encourage everyone to uh, send letters to the provincial and federal government on this issue. I encourage that very strongly because we're at a loss here of what else to do next. I, I, I know... We, we need to win in court in order to make them accountable, but why should we have to go to court in, for this to happen? I, I just don't understand. And it's, it's, you know, very sadly not the only story of this. We've done um, other interviews with other uh, people, both First Nations, Indigenous, and, and not of similar stories all across um, Canada, but it does seem to tend to happen more to First Nations communities. It's at least from uh, I think the I've reason seen. why it happens to First Nation uh, communities is because we have so, such a close connection to Mother Nature um, because it was brought down from our ancestors. But also, I un I understand that the colonial oppressive um, system has also been handed down to settlers from their ancestors as well. So it's it's almost like this this divide is between between Aboriginal indigenous indigenous nations and even the federal and provincial government and shouldn't I I thought Canada was a democracy that I I believed that all the while I was growing up but after going through the court system and and all the hassle of going to prison I I'm I I don't know anymore so, um, Beatrice, I'm afraid we are right out of time, um, but I'm just going to ask you, um, if you would, I, and I should have asked you this before the show, I'm sorry, but if uh, the link to the, the donation page and any other resources that you would like the listeners to know about, if you would send that to me, I'll make sure that gets on the on the show post. And, and to the listeners, of course, you can expect that information and, and links to more about the mega project uh, and uh, the, the piece by Beatrice as well on the website at greenmajority.ca. Uh, Beatrice, I want to thank you a lot for your time and, and keep up the good fight. Yep, 
Thank you. Right. Thank you for getting the word out there. Absolutely. You have yourself a great day. And that is, as I said, that's it for time. So we're, we're done with the program. Unfortunately, I want to thank uh, Matthew Klippenstein and Tim Nash as well for being my guests today. And of course, Megan and Stephen for being our techs. Uh, Stefan, uh, thank you for taking the week off so that I could run the show by myself, I guess. And we'll see everybody, including Stefan, next week. Thank you so much for listening. A Green Majority. Take care.